Okay, hi, hello. I'm I'm Erika Grönberg and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. My name is Hayes Hawk. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Uh, doctors Professor Sudha Reddy uh, in India. Uh, my name is Elke. I'm a midwife in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Hannah Freiwald. I'm originally German. I've been living in Guatemala for the last 31 years. My name is Hannah Darlin and I'm professor of midwifery at Western Sydney University in uh, the west part of, of Sydney, Australia. My name is Debbie Engelbrecht. I live in South Africa. I'm Cecilia Nakubra from Uganda, East of Africa. I'm a midwife for seven years. And I've been a midwife for 20 years. I first got into maternal child health in 96 when I was living in Chile. I'm living in Demoni, Israel, in the Hebrew Israelite community. And it's incredibly powerful to witness the birth of a child and the birth of the family and the birth of the individuals in the room. For me, it's the most wonderful, amazing, miraculous honor ever. Our job as midwives is to be Sherpas, not usurpers. For me, it's a sacred place, it's a secret place, it's a private place, and I have the honor of receiving these little babies. I'm, I'm in the business of watching universes being created. I mean, th there's no better job. Hello, welcome to the Worldwide Midwifery Podcast. I'm your host, Augustine Colebrook. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking to Australian midwife and researcher, Hannah Dolan. Hannah is a professor of midwifery and higher degree research director in the School of Nursing and Midwifery at the Western Sydney University. She has published more than 100 papers and has given presentations at over 100 conferences and seminars, being invited as keynote speaker in half of these. She's been cited in the media over a thousand times and has been a part of three documentary films. Hannah has strong international collaborations and is a co-founder of the International Research Collaboration, EPIC, Epigenetic Impact of Childbirth. She's a past president of the Australian College of Midwives and is currently sits on several peak national and state committees. Hannah is also still a practicing community-based midwife and works in a private group practice in Sydney, Australia. When I asked Hannah about how she became a midwife, she had this story to tell. My, my uh, entrance into midwifery... Um, I often say was destined because my mother was a midwife and I was actually born in Yemen, uh, which is um, a Middle Eastern country in, in, this, in a terrible state of chaos at the moment. And I was raised in, in Yemen. I spent the first 15 years of my life there and, and I used to shadow my mother. In fact, my very early memories were being in a playpen in the corner of the clinic while she did the antenatal clinic playing with a a kidney dish and a, and a tongue sort of, uh, you know, depressor. And that was my very, very early memories. I was surrounded by birth. And when I was 10, I, I begged to see my first birth. And when I was 12, I was um, in the uh, really lucky position of being able to go over and help my next door neighbor give birth to her daughter. And um, I, I was blown away. And the little girl was named after me. I was you know, just about to turn 12, I was on the brink of womanhood. And this was her third daughter. And when the little girl was born and she saw it was a girl, she said, take it away. Uh, and I remember being just so, I guess I had two emotions that ran through my head at that moment. One rage that the reason for her response was if she didn't have a son, her husband would either divorce her or find another wife because there was this complete implicit belief that women determined the sex and, and that girls were of little value. And two, I was absolutely enchanted and mesmerized by what women's bodies could do and how, you know, we're really witnessing the unfolding of a universe when we're at a birth. And I remember taking this little baby to the window and the dawn was breaking over the Middle East and the minarets were calling. And I remember just looking at this absolute perfection wriggling in my arms and thinking, you know, what other job? And I, I can honestly say I still today, having been a midwife for 30 years, think, what other job? Indeed, what other job? Whenever I invite a guest on this show, I ask them to tell a story, specifically a birth story. Hannah shares a birth story in the context of another question I asked her. What is it like to hold space 
What does that phrase mean? In the English language, we use this phrase to describe the complex beauty that is the practice of midwifery. If you were to boil down what we do to its most simplest terms, I believe it would be this phenomena of holding space. Here's what Hannah has to say. Well, I'll give you my definition from the where I see it work best, which is a woman's home. So when I'm called to a labor, I, first of all, I do two things. I have this little habit. Um, I, I put on my Celtic women music, which is a strong women singing powerful songs. I wind down my window, which is probably fairly easy to do in Australia, considering we have fairly good weather. And I, I repeat this mantra, mantra, which is trust in birth, but respect it also. And I've always added the respected also because I think blind trust can be very dangerous. And I do that to really prioritize to myself that I'm here to, to, to really minimize the fears and all of those other things that might be in place. And I then drive into that birth room, that, that house. And as I go, I am really filling my head with all of the positives. I know this woman, I know this house, I know this, this baby's been growing beautifully. I have faith in this woman. And if I have the little worries, I, I position them and I go, well, I'm just going to hold them here and I'm not going to ignore them, but I am going to um, not let them dominate all the other stuff I know is good. And then I come to a woman's house and I will come often to a dim and it's always night, almost always night. And I'll come into this dimly lit room with candles and I come in very softly. I take my shoes off and I, I find myself creeping to a position of almost smallness. And I will, she might be in the pool, she might be on the lounge or whatever, and I'll creep up to her and I will say something like, hello, beautiful woman, or you're doing beautifully. Isn't this exciting? And I will gently, and I'll wait till the contractions finish and I'll place my hand on her and I will look at her and then the rest is like a beautiful dance it, it's like a dance of um well I, I don't quite know how to explain the dance of midwives and women at birth but it is a dance where we each know each other's step and my role is to fall in with hers so if I'm overriding notes in the corner I might have a, a soft torch or something that I'm doing so I don't disturb. I'm creeping around. I am listening unobtrusively. I am smiling at the other people in the room so that they don't feel frightened and fill the room with the fear. But at the same time, while I may look completely serene, my brain is working like mad. I am listening to every sound. I am having multiple thoughts that you can't even explain what an experienced midwife puts together. But at every time along the way, you're deflecting where there may be things that interfere with that. So if you see somebody getting antsy or, you know, mother-in-law or mother, you know, starting to get nervous, you might take them over to the corner and have a word with them. Just, you know, everything's going beautifully. Look what she's doing. So for me, you know, that's midwifery. That's the magic of midwifery as, as you know, people like Holly Powell Kennedy has, has described the art of doing nothing well. You've got, you know, Nikki Lee, the, the art of, you know, sipping tea intelligently it may look like we're not doing anything, but we are doing everything to hold that space and to make that space the physiological optimum for that woman to be birthing. We're not the experts of the birthing of her baby, she is, but we are the experts of what can help facilitate that birthing to happen. Hannah, you are a gem. You have all the language. I'm so fun listening to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It is like I've oftentimes described, um, you know, the duck on water, right? They're just smoothly yes. moving through water, but our feet are going like mad. Our brains are going constantly. What is that sound? What is that smell? What's that dad doing? How about the tea kettle? Where's the temperature of the water? What are the heart tones do? I mean, our brains are just constantly moving, and it's yeah. it is it's a it's a magic to withhold. And you know, that's the thing. It's so hard to teach. I know you're an educator. Yeah. I, I'm an educator as well. And this quality of, of, of duckness, you know, the quiet on the surface and the absolute rapid fire thoughts underneath, it's, it's so hard to communicate that. And in fact, I think the only effective way is 
to witness it over and over, which is why midwifery's history of apprenticeship has been so necessary. Do you still believe that's true? I do. And um, we now take our students to sit and watch because for me, I think we've gotten far too, far too um, caught up on the, the catching and the touching and the doing and far too little on the watching and the learning. So our students sit in the corner and they watch that. They watch the art of doing nothing well. Um, I remember taking a medical student to a birth once and it was really interesting because the woman wanted, she was in her own, wanted to be in her own space. She didn't want anyone in the room. She wanted us all next door. She'd laid out a lovely platter of cheese and biscuits to keep us occupied. And she said when the baby's, and she allowed us to go in and listen to fetal hearts, but she said, when the baby's coming, I'll let you know. And we sat in the kitchen right next to the room where she was. And this medical student was there. And I, I think the medical student had no idea what was going on. And we would be very softly chatting, listening. And every so often we'd hear a change in her tone and we would look at each other and smile. And, um, and then together, my colleague Mel and I, rose as one and walked into the room and scooped the baby out of the pool. And the medical student was just standing there at the door, completely perplexed as what, what had just, how do we know that that was the tone and that was the thing? And, um, you know, it was a beautiful birth and magic. And afterwards I came out and I, I had to sit down and say to the medical student, let me step you through all the things that were happening there that you may not have observed. So from all the little sounds to the pace between the contractions, to the, to the shift in the water, to the call of her voice, to the grunt. I, and I said, when you're a midwife, you don't have to be in there all the time. You hear and, and feel and know so much. So it is a very hard art to teach, but unfortunately I think many of us are not, we're not handing it on to students because students are not spending that time being, being there and listening and watching and, and smelling and, and feeling and observing and list, starting to listen to the, the, you know, when the hair goes up in the back of the neck, what does it mean? And filtering that out from just, I'm having a bad day or I had a bad night last night and I'm projecting into this room. And because we're so busy, we're running in and out of rooms, doing tasks, aren't do, you know, filling out electronic medical records, looking like good midwives because we're running around so efficiently, we're losing the ability, what I think is the magic of midwifery, which is learning from women. And we've got to return to that. We've got to return. But that, that, that takes hours of sitting patiently and watching and being willing to learn from it and not thinking you're the one who knows better. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that the truth? It's a real humility in midwifery that, that our modern patriarchally focused medical world can't even fathom because they're so busy being at the center. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But in midwifery, we center the mother and it changes everything. It does, and we respect the mother. We, we see the mother as full of potential and full of capacity, not full of catastrophe. And, and the medical profession goes, until that baby's out and it's got an Afghar of nine and 10, um, it's all a disaster waiting to happen. Whereas we see each step along the way as it unfolds and we are present in the step, not the entire package to project our fears and our anxieties upon it. And I think that is the fundamental difference. We don't wait for the Afghar of nine and 10. We can kind of see that's coming or we can see it's not coming and we step in. And, um, you know, there's, there's huge profoundness in that, that unfortunately we simplify and don't, I, I don't think we as a profession express well enough. And I don't think much of the world gets. This is a listener supported podcast. If you like what you're listening to and would like to hear more of it, please consider becoming a patron. It's easy to do. Worldwide Midwifery has a Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Worldwide Midwifery, where you can choose your level of support starting at just two US dollars per month. Your financial support allows us to keep offering this content free and allows you to contribute to our guest choices. If you would like access to our extensive show notes, including our research segment, there is a $5 US option. 
I don't know if you you know this the show called The Midwife. Of course I do. So does the whole world. Yeah, well, my mother was one of those midwives. She worked. So this is why I was so enchanted by midwifery because she. I grew up on stories of her catching undiagnosed twins in Docklands of London, and she worked with Jennifer Worth. In fact, Jennifer Worth met her on the very first day when she arrived at the real Nanada's house, which is actually St. Bride's Wide's mission. And um, opened the front door to her and my mum's best friend and um, looked down her nose <laughs> over her spectacles and said, I'll go and get the mother superior. And so my mother, my mother had all of that magic. She, she, in fact, my mum's best friend, we're pretty sure is chummy in the series because she's but tall <laughs> and um, she was born in India. And um, yeah, so she, it, it, I actually went back to, to England and my mum's best friend and I are still in communication. My mum's died since. But we went back and we, um, she's good friends with one of the original sisters from there. And I spent the most magical time interviewing all of them about their experience. I wrote an article, which is, you can still see it's up on the internet. Um, and it's called a, a trip down, it's called The Real Midwives, A Trip Down Memory Lane. It's on the RCM website. And it's got all the pictures of them sitting on the top um, sewing with, with Jennifer Worth in the background and the bikes. And of course, by the time I got to England, there were no more bikes. So I was a bit disappointed. Yeah. There was a lot of the magic still there around the autonomy midwives have, the huge respect, um, being able to go down to the shopping centre and people would walk up to you and say, you caught my baby or you delivered my baby. And, you know, I, I grew up in that magic. And then, of course, came back to Australia where it's a very different story. In an effort to try to explain midwifery to the world, in an effort to try to mainstream the profession of midwifery. We have to engage in a conversation and even a debate between the midwifery model of care and the obstetric model of care. Hannah explains these two models of care and specifically why one is seen as less skilled than the other. Put up uh, an obstetrician's abilities to put a forceps on or do a cesarean and you put that up against a midwife who croons softly to a woman in the corner, massages her back, dims the light, gives her sips of water and tells her she can do it. Society will look at those two and go, oh, the obstetrician's more skilled. Well, we've got to shift that understanding. It's the same idea around you know, climate change and all of this. We've got to shift our understanding that actually nature is an incredibly smart thing and midwives have the ability to get the best out of nature. And um, therefore, we should respect that and put that up on equal platform with our obstetric colleagues' ability to use a knife or to use a pair of forceps. But that's often not what happens in Australia and other countries around the world. Hannah goes on to explain. And in Australia, the reason we have huge battles with midwifery gaining more power is because, yes, I mean, a midwife stand in the way of the beach house, we often say, you know, the, the second house. I mean, obstetricians make, you know, around an average of $2 million in Australia. Well, why would you, and, and the majority of the women they care for are, are low-risk, healthy, well-educated women. And this is even the sadder part of it, you know, the, the women who should have the best outcomes are having the worst outcomes are the women who need their skills, who have got really high-risk complex pregnancies, are not the ones that are getting their skills. So we have a system that's completely inverse on its head, and we need to turn it around, and we need to reconstitute the system with midwifery as the, the, the premise, and obstetrics as the response when there are problems. Yeah, exactly. I, I, in, in one of my last interviews, we we made this uh, really interesting comparison. The difference in the quality of the decision-making when an expert in normal decides something is abnormal is radically different than the quality of decision-making when someone who's an expert in abnormality decides something is normal, right? It's, it's the, 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 the quality of that decision-making when it starts from a place of abnormality is fundamentally flawed. Well, you know, we, we train our obstetricians for six years in surgical skills, and then we expect them to come out and not use those surgical skills. Um, it makes no sense. You know, um, Adams, who, um, no, Douglas, I think it was, who invented, he was the father of ultrasound, you know, he said really clearly, well, you know, way back when ultrasound was first coming into, into um, healthcare, he said, you know, give a boy, give a small boy a hammer and they'll destroy the furniture. 
we can't expect obstetricians to be trained as surgeons and then not use their surgical skills, whereas midwives are trained to facilitate normal. So that's respect. And this is the other problem we've got in the world today. We've entered a world of, of science as God. We've entered a world of technology as better. We have forgotten the respect for what humans in their complexity and their individuality have to offer. This segment of Research Updates is presented by ClientCare.net, the most comprehensive EHR and midwifery practice management system designed for and by community-based midwives. For more information and a free 30-day trial, go to ClientCare.net. Published in March 2018 in the journal Midwifery, this featured research article is titled Maternal and Perinatal Outcomes by Planned Place of Birth Among Women with Low-Risk Pregnancies in High-Income Countries, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. The lead author is Vanessa Scarf, who is a midwife and project coordinator at the University of Technology, Sydney for Birthplace in Australia, a study being undertaken by researchers from around the country comparing neonatal mortality and morbidity associated with low-risk births at home, birth centers, or standalone midwifery units compared with births in standard hospital labor wards. Vanessa joins us to share a little bit about her midwifery history and her research uh, my name is Vanessa Scarf. I'm a midwife from Australia. In 2012, I was given an opportunity to uh, commence working on the Birthplace in Australia study with Professor Caroline Homer and a team of uh, eight other researchers from around Australia. And what they were interested in looking at is uh, how place of birth impacts on maternal and uh, neonatal outcomes. So we... We are, we're just in the final stages of uh, publishing that research and that, that's been led by um, Caroline Homer and other very prominent midwives in Australia were also involved with that research as well as um, some obstetricians. Hannah Darling was one of our chief investigators as were Della Forster and Helen McLaughlin from Victoria, uh, Charlene Thornton also from Victoria. So it was, a, it was incredibly pleasurable and it was an, an amazing opportunity for me to work with this really wonderful group of researchers from um, from these places in Australia. So uh, we got, I, I then was offered the opportunity to do a PhD uh, and the, the gap that was existing with the place of birth research in Australia was the, uh, the cost of place of birth. And so my PhD is about costing uh, what it, what it costs for the health service to provide services for women who uh, would like to choose to give birth at home or in a birth centre and in the, ho in the hospital. Um, there's, no, there's no sort of really good research around that. So I have focused on one state in Australia, in New South Wales, which actually accounts for a third of the births uh, for the whole country per year. Uh, and as part of the as part of the bigger birthplace in Australia study, we were talking some time ago about how the the place of birth uh, research has not actually been brought together in one big systematic review. So there are there are Cochrane reviews about um, home birth versus hospital, and and then alternative birthing spaces compared to hospital, but nothing had kind of brought it together in one big document. So we decided to uh, to look at all the research and we were focusing on um, high-income countries uh, that looked at perinatal and, and maternal outcomes from different places of birth. And um, during that process, we also developed a quality appraisal tool to specifically appraise place of birth research. Uh, and what we wanted to be really clear about is that we wanted to look at women who were were planning to give birth at home in a birth centre or in a hospital setting um, and they were supported in that plan. So these were women who were appropriately placed to be giving birth in these, in these settings but also being cared for by uh, qualified you know, maternity care providers. So that would be uh, midwives, um, and in, and in 
many countries, not in Australia necessarily, um, doctors certainly do care for and support women who are planning to give birth at home or in the birth centre and obviously in a hospital. So we also were able to perform a meta-analysis uh, of a lot of the data that we collected because these, a lot of these studies, whilst many of them were observational, they had, they had very good um, quantitative data. So uh, what we ended up finding, uh, we found 28 articles that we felt met the inclusion criteria. And, and what was very important to us was that the inclusion criteria were women who had, who had healthy pregnancies at low risk of complication um, and who were planning to give birth at home or in a birth centre as, as close to the time of labour starting as possible. So we wanted to look at women who were at the end of their pregnancy, so term from 37 to 41 completed weeks, um, because we know that women uh, accidentally have their babies at home uh, and these outcomes can be variable. And we did a meta-analysis uh, which revealed that women planning hospital births had statistically significant lower odds of normal vaginal birth than in other planned settings. And we were just looking at, um, so these women sort of notably have very similar clinical profiles. And however, it, it appears that women who are planning to give birth in hospitals just had lower odds of giving, having a normal vaginal birth. Uh, we also found that severe perineal trauma and um, hemorrhage, and we looked at hemorrhage of over a thousand mils of postpartum hemorrhage, were uh, the rates of those were lower in planned home births than in um, than in obstetric units. So, what it looks like is that for women, the outcomes of planning to give birth at home or in a birth centre were um, better. And then when we looked at the baby what we found was there was no statistically significant difference in um, infant mortality, and that included stillbirth. However, uh, you know, there was a slightly higher, there were slightly higher odds of a baby, of a woman who has not had a baby before, so a nulliparous woman, slightly higher odds of those babies, um, you know, dying during childbirth or in the early neonatal period. Um, and that had also been played out in the birthplace in England study, for example. But when, when they're all put together, there was no statistically significant difference. I think that the most important thing about this is that, you know, there, there's a lot of resistance, uh, particularly in Australia, about um, uh, providing women with options for giving birth outside of a hospital. Uh, and, and we struggle with you know, giving, giving women more choices than, than just going to their local maternity hospital to have their baby. And one of the big arguments is that, oh, but it's not as safe to have the baby outside a hospital. And so what we're just trying to do is we're pooling the evidence to just to, to support the argument that, you know, when women are well supported uh, with, a, with an appropriate care provider, and they are appropriately placed to be having their baby outside of the hospital. So they're women who are healthy, they have a healthy pregnancy um, and, and they generally are well prepared for birth and uh, it, it's perfectly safe for women to have a baby at home or in a birth centre. If you'd like to read more about this meta-analysis or the rest of our show notes, please consider becoming a patron through our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash worldwide midwifery. Most midwives have a thing, like a thing that they get to practice a lot, the universe keeps giving them opportunities, or that they just really gravitate towards that they're really good at. So what's your thing? What are you really, really good at? <laughs> um, I, I think I'm probably someone who, um, I, look, when I was a child, I remember um, somebody saying to my mother, that girl has got unbelievable curiosity you have to keep her occupied the whole time or she'll be bored and I do think I love everything um it's one of my big problems and I want to try everything so so I love research because I have an internal curiosity in asking questions I love politics 
because I think if we can be articulate and smart and measured and, and, and get a presence, we can make enormous change. I love practice because when I'm in a room with a woman, I become a kind of person I really like in me because I'm not, you know, when I'm in a room, in a birthing room, I think if many people saw me in that place, they would see a different Hannah because I'm a, I'm a person who never stops moving. I'm a person always on the go. I'm a person full of, you know, oomph. But in a room, I'm, I'm like liquid. Um, so I like the way a woman's space makes me as a human feel. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, there are multiple things I like. I, don't, I think I'm probably not a master of anything. Um, I'm a dabbler in everything. And I'm also a eternal student. I, I'm always wanting to learn. I never think I've got it sorted. The other thing about birth that I, I just want to make this point, because I think this is where sometimes as midwives we go wrong. The moment you become arrogant about birth, the moment you don't realize that when you go to a birth, there's a little bit of death sitting on your shoulder, you become dangerous. And I see midwives get arrogant about birth. Like, you know, oh, I'm such an expert at this and it's all normal. If you believe it's normal, it will be normal. That's when we fall down. You know, birth can go terribly wrong and it can go terribly wrong very fast. And your job is to step in when that happens and to give the advice and use your skills appropriately, not hope that by just believing that things will be okay. So I see us letting our own profession down by not responding to the abnormal when it is abnormal. Um, and I think that's a balancing act. I don't think we ever get it perfectly right because we're not perfect people, we're humans. But I think we need to always work on that very subtle articulation between action and inaction. And I think some of our colleagues lose it. And I also see midwives sometimes drawn to our profession because of their own their own baggage, their own damage in their lives of needing to be needed. And this is another really important point. When you work in continuity of care, women almost stick you on a pedestal. Like it's quite intoxicating. I mean, I have women who still send me Christmas cards and when it's midwives day, send me midwives cards and every birthday will we'll mention and bring up the whole birth and how wonderful, you know, I was in that, that situation. How easy it is to get a big head. But the moment you allow that to be about you, you actually become dangerous. So I'm always talking myself down from that pedestal to, yeah, look, it's, it's really nice they're happy with me and it's really nice they see that. But actually, I really want them to feel powerful. I really want them to realise what they did. And I don't ever want to think that I am somehow um, a celestial being who has powers far beyond what I have as a human. Gosh, it's so true. I, um, I oftentimes talk about how um, birth workers, and specifically midwives, are drawn to birth for one of three reasons. They're either in it for themselves, like what you just described, either healing their own trauma or receiving the adulation. They're in it for the baby and the magical experience of welcoming a new human on the planet, or they're in it for the mom, the empowering experience of doing it on your own. But whatever of those three energies brought you to birth, you still have to work on the balance of all three energies for the rest of your profession and each yes. single in experience, right? A absolutely. You've constantly got to talk to yourself in your head, not only about your ego, but also about, is this worry you got a real worry? So I always say to midwives, talk to your worry. Don't shove it aside. Talk to yeah. it. If it doesn't yeah. go away, it's real. If it goes away, it isn't. And I That's think right. we don't do enough about it. So we, we have, we, we develop, um, you know, like a religious religiosity about midwifery sometimes, which is you can't have negative thoughts. If you have negative thoughts, you create, listen, your negative thoughts are put there to protect you. Yeah. And sometimes we manufacture them. Your job is to work out the difference between the real and the manufactured. And the only way to talk manufactured thoughts down is to face them head on and say, what the hell's going on here? Is this real? And the moment you do that, you expose them. And they generally fade away like a, you know, like a ghost. But the ones that are real are the ones that just continually sit there and they nag at you. And, and one of the things I love is we always have two midwives at a birth. So sometimes we'll look at each other and we'll, we'll kind of nod our heads slightly to the side and out we go to the garden. And I will say something like, I, 
I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm getting worried. And then my colleague will say, you know what? I've been thinking exactly the same thing. Or she'll say, no, I'm not worried. I've seen her do this before. I reckon we should try this. And then we go back in together. So it's really important midwives feel safe in relationships with other colleagues to say something's bugging me and I just don't quite know how to sort out the real from the not real. And, and you know, I do a lot of work on fear. I do a lot of teaching on fear. I run workshops on fear and um, the conversations we need to have with ourselves, not only about midwifery, but about life, I think are fundamental to our survival, our healthy survival as humans. And, and actually the, the propagation and the, the extension of this profession. Uh, unfortunately, yes. there's so many who are not un, unpacking their own baggage. They're just transferring it on to their students or even their clients that, that it actually is sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. We aren't getting very much progress because the same stuff needs to keep being processed. I love that you're working on fear classes and personal growth essentially is what's happening. I love that. Uh, and, and, you know, we need to also teach resilience. Um, oh, that's a great I think, phrase. I think we're becoming less resilient, uh, resilient as a human race. And I find that fascinating because life has never been safer, yet we've never been more fearful. And, and, you know, I have a hypothesis, and one of my hypotheses is, and it probably comes from having had, you know, several kind of tragic events in my own life, that because life is so safe, we're not confronted with the visceral reality of life and death as much. And in that visceral reality of life and death events, we saw community come together. We saw connection. We saw the fact we survived this stuff. And I think not that we ever want to go back to those days of, of losing as many people as we did, but I think we've lost a little bit of the bringing of people together and the ability to say to ourselves, we can survive this. We can do this. It will be okay. And, and I that's, that's truly one of the most magical parts about community-based birth that's unmedicated yeah. is that a woman faces her fears and stands up and says, I did it. Look what I did. And even cellularly, the biology of that baby is, I did it as yeah. opposed to the surrender and rescue reality of the medical hospitalized births. Yes, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, I often say women get to climb their own Everest when they give birth. Men don't ever get to do that unless they actually go up the mountain. Um, but women get to do that. They mount their own Everest. And, you know, who our job as midwives is not to be usurpers, but to be Sherpas. And oh, we that's so great. Wait, can you just say that again? <laughs> You're coming with so many treatables. Oh my gosh. <laughs> say it again. Our job, our job as midwives is to be Sherpas, not usurpers. And we have forgotten our role. We, we, we do so much taking over rather than carrying the baggage and showing them the path. And, you know, when, when, when they get lost or they, they lose sight in showing, well, actually there's this other little side path that you might find easier that that's a job but we've we've lost our we've lost our way as a health professional and you know people will say to me oh women are so much more frightened and the women are they're just older and they're sicker and they're fatter and they're asking for it you know it's the usual mantra but actually you know the women in our practice they're all older than the average woman in the whole of the maternity service many of them have got complex pregnancies and, um, you know, they're, they're, they, they fit many of those classic things we do to put all the blame on women. And yet they give our rate of normal birth is over 90%. So don't tell me it's about women. It's about us. And what we've done is we've disempowered women. We have, we have made birth the, the medicalized event that it is. Then women have bought and believed it's got something to do with their bodies and their inability and they need help and then they go meet in the coffee shop with all the other mums who all share terrible traumatic stories and so a culture of birth as trauma and incapacity has permeated our society um, and and so we've we the health provider have created that we've done that we've convinced women women have bought it so don't let's you know, I'm writing a book at the moment. I'm just putting the final touches on a, on a book called 
birthing outside the system, the canary in the coal mine. And it pulls together our work and many other authors work on why are women now leaving mainstream care to free birth, to have unregulated birth workers at their births, um, to have high risk home births. What is driving women away from our system in greater numbers than we've ever seen before in modern history? And the number one reason is because they have finally got that the trauma we caused them in the first birth, the language we use around them, the bullying and the coercion is getting in the way of them being able to give birth. And so they're going, if your attitude is it's my way or the highway, thanks very much, but I'm choosing the highway. So we, the health provider, have a lot of responsibility in what has happened to children. Yeah, the system has a lot of responsibility. I think obviously you and I and other midwives who are helping to provide that alternative are doing it. Sure, but I think it's easier for, rather than pointing the finger at obstetricians, because I see many midwives caught up in it too. Yeah, I, think, for sure. For sure. I think we all need to claim it. We all need to say we've got a problem and then we need to work on it together. And I know if I look back over my 30 year career, I spent 20 years in the system and I've spent the last 10 years out of it. And I would say I have failed women many times in my past and I'm just determined never to do that again and to make sure that we have insight enough to fix the world and make it a better place. And I have daughters now and I, I'm driven even more to think, you know, I want for them to have powerful, meaningful births um, mm. because, you know, we've got to stop the trauma at some point. Yeah, it is. It is really about stopping the trauma. Well, so, um, I want to ask you a question like for kind of the globe, if you will. It could certainly be local if that's how you see it. But now that you have practiced for these 30 or 35 years and all of your exposure and education in all the care settings, I wonder what do you know now that you wish was common knowledge? There's nothing wrong with women. Um, women are perfectly capable they're more capable today than ever before. They've never been healthier. They've never been stronger. They've never been better educated with, with more rights. Um, I, I just wish that everybody really believed. If you, if, if you believe that at your heart, that women are capable, women are powerful, you would change how you practice. And I, for this book that we're writing, I've interviewed and, and had chapters from several obstetricians who were phenomenal obstetricians. Um, and what has struck me, and I've asked every single one of them in the interviews, what do you think of women? And I've noticed that obstetricians who are really get it, they get it, they get midwives need to be there and they need to come in when they're needed, are the ones who say, they literally, it's almost as though no one's asked this obstetrician before in their lives what they think of women yet what do they do they work with women and they've just kind of almost been speechless you know women are incredible they say women are far you know honestly they're far they're far more kind of and they almost lose their words as i'm losing mine now you know they're, they're, they're far more capable and emotionally intelligent than men they're i just i i watch what women do and i just um my breath's taken away and these are words coming out of obstetricians and it really strikes me. Then I listen to my obstetric colleagues who clearly don't like women and the way they talk about them, you know, that they're, they're, they're old and they're, they're, they're not working as well anymore and they're fat and they're, and they, you know, and it's all about blaming them for all their dysfunction. So how we view women is at the heart of how we care for women. And, and you know, that, that is the fundamental question now I ask people, what do you think of women? <laughs> It's very revealing. Isn't it though? Speaking of the canary in the coal mine, like that, that's it right there. If yeah. you don't love who you're working for, you need to probably stop. Woo. Yeah. Um, so a couple last questions before we wrap up tonight. Um, I wonder, will you tell us your wildest, most extreme or crazy moment in birth? Wow. Uh, I'm sure you oh, had well. a few. Had <laughs> <laughs> a few. Um, well, I, I think my fondest, probably my fondest um, memories are when there's animals at birth. I love that. Um, interestingly, my most vivid and beautiful memories of the last ten years when I've been doing continuity care with um, in the community and 
and what I've struck me is before my 20 years before are kind of faces and slices of events, but very little, I guess, coherent cases unless they were catastrophic. And there's those ones staying in mind. But I can now think back on any birth in the last 10 years and I can tell you the color of the lino on the floor, the chip on the cup, the, the, the dog's name, the driveway up, the color of the house, the curtains, and everything about that family because it is now embedded so vividly in my mind. So my fondest memories are when there's animals at birth and I, there's a few rabbits I've nearly uh, broken backs on because they suddenly appear in the dim under your feet. Um, I, love, I love watching dogs. I call often, I, I was at a birth last year with a beautiful woman and um, her little dog just followed her everywhere. And every time she had a contraction, she knelt down, he was there next to her. And when she went into her room to have her baby, he just sat in the corner of the, of the mat and he waited till the baby was born. And I called him the doula dog. So I have very fond memories of animals at birth. And I think that's the beauty of birth at home. The things that matter to women are there. Um, I have <laughs> fond memories of, I remember one birth in a birth center where the, they had, the woman was in a uh, orchestra and she had the entire quartet in there playing. That was very nice. Um, <laughs> um, I've had, you know, a few in a few car births and, and I remember <laughs> one of my funniest and I, it's almost, uh, I'm almost ashamed of it, but was, was a phone call I took one day when I was still working in the system in, in a hospital. I was in charge and this um, man rang me up and he said, look, my wife's just rung me. She didn't speak any English, um, but she's told me she's gone to the toilet and there's something hanging out of her vagina like dog's guts. Now, I had grown up in the Middle East where dogs were, you know, frequently um, dead on the road or whatever. And dog's guts was something I knew exactly what they looked like. So I immediately thought core prolapse. So I told her husband you need to ring her back and you need to get her down on her hands and knees with a bum in the air and I'm calling the ambulance and what's her address and she mustn't move from that position so you know I thought I was really getting into you know the correct mode and I called the surgical team in because we were in a hospital where you have to call a bed everyone was ready surgery was there. everybody was ready she comes in by ambulance and she's looking very peaceful and she's on the trolley and the ambulance drivers are coming in with her and um, I get her into the room and I pull back the covers and there's no evidence of anything there. Um, anyway, <laughs> the ambulance arrived at her house to find her watering the pot plants. And so they decked her and put her on the trolley. She spoke no English. She just thought she'd, and her husband hadn't been able to get back onto her. So she thought she'd just been kidnapped. Um, and what, what ended up eventually after we kind of threshed it all through with an interpreter is she ended up having a tapeworm. And that's what was hanging out when she went to the toilet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So for a very long time, I did not live down the ribbing of having called in everybody for a tapeworm. <laughs> oh, that's my goodness. <laughs> Lost in translation. Couldn't be bigger. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hannah will be at uh, the ICM conference in Bali in June of 2020, as will I hope to see people there and she will be signing her new book called birthing outside the system the canary in the coal mine it comes out in november this year and i asked her to tell us a little bit about it yes well look i've you know i've done many things in my life but i gotta say this is probably the thing i'm most proud of um i think it's a moment in history that is here uh to really challenge the humanization of childbirth and i think we have we have caused enormous damage in the psyche of women by the way that we care for them. So this book is essentially saying, we're the coal mine, we're the coal miners, we're, we're mining away. The canary is the women. The women have been brought into this mine. Supposedly, they're supposed to let us know when what we're doing is not good or not safe and not acceptable to them. And you know, miners of old, if the canary went quiet or the canary keeled over, they got out of the mine. They took the canary with them. In fact, miners used to go down to the mines with little vials of oxygen. They had resuscitation chambers. They knew that their lives depended on listening to the canary. But today, the canary is going quiet and, the, and many women are leaving our system. And yet we're doubling down on the mining. 
we're continuing to expose the fissures where the poisonous gases are leaking and the canary is going quieter and quieter and if we think that the only person affected is women we've got to think again because we will be affected eventually we cannot not be affected by what we're doing to women. So this book is a call to health professionals that it's time for us to listen to the canary. It's time for us to really seriously think about what is it that is causing those poisonous gases to leak? What is it that is affecting women's trust in our care and in their, their birth trauma that is emerging from their care? And it's time for us to humanize that care urgently now, never before in history, in the last five to 10 years, we have had report after report after report out from world leading government, governmental and non-governmental bodies. WHO's release of the intrapartum care guidelines for respectful care during childbirth. You know, the first top four points were continuity of care, respect women, um, support people, and, and communication. They were all humanized elements. This is the World Health Organization. They've now got the, you know, they've got the respectful care and pregnancy. You've got the, you've got the UN Special Rapporteur at the moment on violence against women and submissions are going in from everywhere about violence in childbirth. We've got, you know, we've got White Ribbon Alliance, we've got Safer Motherhood, we've got the Lancet series on midwifery that came out identifying respect as being the, one of the most key parts of maternity care to make it safe. We've got the Lancet series on cesarean section saying, you know, the answer is to return midwives to doing what midwives can do. We've gone too far. We've got, um, you know, too, too little, too, too late, too much, too soon. Another Lancet series coming out saying we've lost the plot. The cesarean section Lancet series showed that cesarean section has doubled in a decade worldwide and that we're now losing more mothers and babies as a result. So never before have we had the way to do it correctly and the force of the world's leading bodies behind us. So now we have to be strong, we have to be fearless, and we have to get out there and we have to push this agenda for the sake of women and for the sake of the future of humanity.